Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to New Books in Hindu Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkron, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Brian Black of Lancaster University on an exciting new Rutledge publication in dialogue with the Mahabharata. Hello, Brian, and welcome to the podcast. Hi, Raj. Thank you very much for inviting me. Oh, my pleasure. Um, I, I sort of... Uh, Come on this podcast with people experts of all kinds of hindu studies and i play them half the time and sometimes i don't have to play them uh but this is actually a book that is remotely related to my actual research interest which is sanskrit narrative so so it's good it's exciting uh in dialogue with the mahabharata um what is what's the book about and what are some of the ways in which you use dialogue well um the book is about a number of things i mean i think that that the way that i've laid things out in the in the introduction gives a pretty good sense of what I mean by dialogue, in particular what I particularly what I mean by the phrase in dialogue. And as I lay it out in the introduction, there are three things that I, I have in mind when I talk about in dialogue. One is that this book is meant to be a philosophical approach to the Mahabharata. Um, and in saying that, I'm not at all claiming that, that the Mahabharata is exclusively or even primarily philosophy. Um, but on the other hand, I think that the philosophical dimensions have sometimes been underplayed and underappreciated by um, especially modern readers. So the way that, you know, one of the meanings of, of in dialogue is to really pay attention to the dialogue form and to pay close attention to how interlocutors make arguments, how they speak to each other, um, and the ways in which conversations unfold. And in in that um, dimension of dialogue, um, on the one hand, I'm sort of influenced by the previous work that I had done on the Upanishads and looking at how the dialogue form is important to conveying the religious and philosophical ideas. But I'm also um, guided by modern Western philosophers, people like Gadamer, and how they read ancient philosophers such as Plato. And so even though I would, I would never argue that, that the Mahabharata is philosophy in the same way that somebody like Plato is, on the other hand, I think that similar to some of Plato's dialogues, that we can understand some of the Mahabharata's more philosophical claims or the philosophical questions that it puts forth by really sort of engaging ourselves with the dialogues as they unfold. So that's one thing that the, um, that the book is about. Another thing that I try to do, and an, another meaning of the phrase in dialogue, is to look at how different sections of the Mahabharata are in dialogue with each other. And, um, and again, I mean, I'm nowhere near the, the first scholar to, to pay attention to these sorts of things. Um, but on the other hand, um, as I and other um, recent scholars have pointed out, there is a rather sort of notorious tradition um, in the 19th and early 20th centuries of Western scholars basically seeing the Mahabharata as being um, rather a collection of different teachings that 
contradict or perhaps don't have a direct relationship with each other. And so one of the things I'm very interested in in this book is how, um, for example, how sometimes the, the same interlocutors, the same characters make different arguments in different circumstances. I'm interested in how um, different sort of dialogical episodes um, relate to other dialogical episodes um, and, and basically looking at how um, you know, there are certain ideas or different themes in the Mahabharata that could be considered to be dialectics in the sense that we, we have different points of view different points of views put forward at different times and looking at how um, the relationship between different ideas kind of play out as the text unfolds. Um, and the, the third um, way that I use the phrase in dialogue in the title is in terms of my, my own dialogue with the text. Now, in that sense, I don't really um, get particularly introspective about my personal journey with the text. Um, but on the other hand, um, I think, I mean, I'm, I'm more interested in the more general idea that the Mahabharata or um, other ancient sources, especially um, those of us who are doing research on, on India, that ancient sources from, from India have something to teach us today, have some sort of relevance to whether it's our philosophical, our religious, our political, our ethical concerns today. And one of the things I address very briefly in the book is, is how you know, early Western scholars of the Mahabharata did not really assume that the Mahabharata had any sort of significance or any um, ideas that were worthwhile that would be relevant to our lives today. So in that sense, by, by taking a philosophical approach doesn't mean that I'm you know, trying to apply um, you know, modern philosophical methods to, to reading it, but rather taking seriously the, the philosophy that, that's in the Mahabharata um, and, and not see it as just sort of a remnant of in India's past or of, of, of world history um, or just merely as playing a sort of role in the historical development of Hinduism, but rather addressing ideas that are relevant to the human condition and that, um, that we have perhaps as much to learn from today as, um, as the people who were the first audiences and listeners to the Mahabharata. All three of those uh, categories, and, and this is what I'm hoping you, you'd lay out, actually, the, the, the very three you talk about in your introduction and, and circle back about in your conclusion, all three of them, uh, to me, are, are, are fascinating and deeply resonant in terms of the ways in which I perceive, research, or engage censored narrative of the epics, the Mahabharata in particular. Um, so... I started uh, tutoring at the Oxford Center for Hindu Studies in July, and I was given these two courses. One was a course on Hindu philosophy, Vedanta and Sankhya, um, and the other was a course on Hindu epics, right? Ramayana Mahabharata. So I, I decided to pilot live Zoom tutorial sessions, and uh, partially out of convenience and partially as an experiment, I held a single tutorial 
for both classes to see who would show up and what we talk about and the ways in which um, content from the one course would illumine the other. It, uh, someone like myself has internalized that and, and probably someone like yourself as well, but, but it needs to be expanded upon that, that there's profound uh, uh, wisdom, there's profound philosophy embedded in the, 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 in, in the narratives and the dialogues and the, in the very plots. And that first point, and maybe we'll take them one by one, um, it deeply fascinates me. I sort of think of Sanskrit narrative as like, you know, it's a coconut. There's a water, there's water in there. <laughs> You've got to crack it though. You've got to find a way to extract or decode um, what the text is saying. Sometimes it's overt, you know, like Shastra, like this is, this is what. But even when it's not overt instruction, um, I imagine you'd agree there's, there's always this didactic component to, to, to every crevice of the Mahabharata. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, I mean, I think that you bring up two things there that interest me. Um, you know, and, and one is is going back to, you know, to what I was saying is that that there are philosophical arguments, there are implicit philosophical claims that are, you know, embedded within the narrative itself. Um, even in a conversation that doesn't always seem like it's sort of more technically philosophical. But the other thing about it that I think is really interesting is, is that by embedding didactic material within a dialogue form, it, it brings attention to certain dynamics that, um, that, that I think the Mahabharata almost sort of invites us to think about that might also be taking place in, in other texts, but perhaps not as explicitly. So for example, um, you know, the, the Manava Dharma Shastra is also in a dialogue form. You know, it, it's also, you know, has this framing dialogue at the very beginning, but it doesn't return to that. Um, and so we, we don't really think about it once we are, you know, a few pages in, into the text. I think that because the Mahabharata seems far more sort of self-conscious uh, in terms of, of all its speakers and all its listeners, um, bringing attention to the fact that, that the context of a teaching really matters in terms of, um, of the content of the teaching. Um, and that, that that way, it not only kind of invites this sort of different engagement with the more didactic material, but it, it might also, um, or it, see, it certainly invites me to then when I go back and look at the Manava Dharma Shastra, I'm like, I'm thinking, well, who is Manu? You know, what, what is his sort of subjective standpoint? Because for example, a lot, you know, verbatim, a lot of the material that, that Bhishma teaches Yudhishthira in the Shanti and Anushasana Parvans appears in the Manava Dharma Shastra as well as other Dharma Shastra texts. Um, and I think that we think about it differently though when that same material is presented in the context of a narrative, especially a, a, a narrative where the speaker is often challenged on what they're saying. I mean, for the most part, Yudhishthira listens, you know, quite attentively and, and passively 
um, to Bhishma's teachings, but then there are a number of places along the line that he he really challenges Bhishma. He can't believe what Bhishma is teaching him. He's questioning <laughs> whether you know what Bhishma is telling him could possibly be true. And I think that those moments are sort of reminders to us to be you know thinking you know to be critical readers, um, even when it comes to the more didactic material. So one of my favorite sort of metaphors or ways of thinking about the Mahabharata is as is as a conference. It's like the AAR of its day of, of ancient India. It's this, uh, I, I view it as, as weaving this, this, this double helical structure, like weaving in all the Upanishadic voices and the Vedic voices and some Bhakti voices and whatever's available. It's, it's the religious studies conference of its day. Um, 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 uh, there's certain panels, right? It arranges certain vignettes for you. And then there's this, there's, they've, they've published this, the conference proceedings. <laughs> we call it the Mahabharata. And it's a conversation. And, yeah. and sure, sure, the publishers have, uh, clearly they had clearly their agendas at play. But they also include dissenting voices. In, uh, 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 well, I think of narrative, uh, the power of narrative is preserving paradox and preserving tension and dialogue especially. Because even if you show, like, even if someone objects to, to Rama going to the forest saying, what are you doing? This is some conceit from uh, made up by Brahmins. This is nonsense. Come back and rule. And even if the text is saying, well, you know, really Rama's right. Nevertheless, that voice is in there to be considered. And it's, just, it's so profound. It's, it's just so pedagogically profound to, to consider these various voices, especially about issues that you can't really know what the right thing to do is. You can't take a final stance. Like, the, the, life is messy. So uh, something that reflects life has to be messy. And uh, dialogue is a great way to preserve that, I think. Mm. And in a sense, you've, you've, um, you've really captured another primary interest of this book because um, actually, when I first started writing it, what ended up in this book was, was just part one. <laughs> have a much have a much longer book, and I'm not sure if I'm going to live long enough um, to be able to write, you know, this much larger book. Um, well, then, in your next life, then, <laughs> right? Um, but um, but what I've decided to be the 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 sort of um, the theme that brings the particular dialogues that I look at together in this book is that they're the ones that are specifically about moral dilemmas. And in that sense, um, I, was, I was very influenced by Malti Lal's work. Um, and in, in a sense, as much as I liked his work, I was always a little bit disappointed by his edited volume on moral dilemmas in, in the Mahabharata. Um, and, you know, perhaps in some ways, certainly it isn't, wasn't my only motivation, but in some ways, this book was sort of writing what I wanted to get out of a book like that when, when I first saw the title is to, is to look at how dialogue addresses moral dilemmas, these situations where there's clearly um, not, um, you know, not a straightforward answer as to how one should act in the world. And one of the things I found as I kind of dug into this a little bit more deeply is that the sorts of moral dilemmas that the Mahabharata poses are, can be quite different in nature for each other, sorry, from each other. So for example, 
you know, one of the most famous moral dilemmas is the, the dilemma that, that Arjuna faces um, on the eve of battle that's captured in the Bhagavad Gita. And that very much is a kind of classic moral dilemma because he, he's about to, to act in a certain way and he doesn't know which way to act. Um, so he, there's a decision to be made and what he's basically asking Krishna for is some guidance as to how to make this difficult decision. But other, um, other dilemmas that are explored in the Mahabharata, um, I think, are explored more retrospectively. And so one of um, the chapters that I feel is, is perhaps um, one of the most innovative in, in the book, in the sense that it covers material that perhaps fewer other scholars have, have gone over before, is the dilemma about Bhishma's vows. And one of the things I found interesting about that is that within the narrative, Bhishma actually chooses to make those vows without any consideration, without consulting anybody. And so in that sense, it's not a sort of classic moral dilemma in terms of, the, in terms of making a difficult choice. He makes that choice, one might argue, impulsively, even recklessly. But then what's so interesting about it, though, is that he has to face up to that choice again and again and again. And so I think that one of, in that way, I think that the Mahabharata really speaks to the sorts of moral quandaries we face in our own lives, because so much of our own sort of um, navigating um, our you know, moral lives, trying to come up with a moral compass isn't always just about how we make the choices we do, but how we live with the choices that we already made and how we think back about those same choices in different ways and have different justifications and perhaps sometimes, um, you know, really challenge <laughs> the choices that we made and, and, and perhaps have to live with, with some sort of, you know, regret. And, you know, one of the things that I don't think the Mahabharata is explicit about this, but I think that the, the Mahabharata sort of invites us to consider whether Bhishma is actually having some sort of remorse about that choice when he's narrating the stories of the Shanti Parvan and the Anushasana Parvan to Yudhishthira, because some of the stories that he tells Yudhishthira seem to undermine the sorts of arguments that he makes um, earlier in the text to defend his, the vows that he makes. So I find that also very interesting in the Mahabharata is that it not only presents us with these sort of moral questions, these moral puzzles, but even the way that it frames these moral questions or moral puzzles is different from one to the other, some in advance, some retrospectively, some perhaps a little bit of both, et cetera. Well, there's, a, there's so much there. One thought that comes to mind, um, uh, as, as you may know, or my, my listeners know, I sort of just enjoy the, the dialogue, apropos the topic of your book, for, for the podcast, enjoy what comes in the moment. Um, but uh, see, there's so many times when I've been um, uh, with teachers, traditional teachers, sometimes academic teachers, or even have been teaching or, or coaching, where um, the best way to go about it is not directly 
is to tell a story or to create a situation where if that student infers or grasps it, they'll get it for life. Or if you depersonalize a story or if you tell a story about yourself, that's actually reflecting where they are. They see it so much more clearly. And I think the Mahabharata has, has internalized this, 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 this pedagogic strategy of alluding you know, and this is what narrative does. It points. This is what poetry does. It points, right? And it's it's teaching us when we least expect it, and that's why it's so powerful because it's not wagging its finger at us, um, at least not all the time. And um, that's one thought that comes to mind in terms of whether or not the text is being explicit. Um, the, the other thought that comes to mind about what you just said relates to the third mode of in dialogue that you referred to at the outset, in that. Um, uh, we don't preserve these these tales because there's a shortage of ingenuity in, in the Indian subcontinent and across the globe. We preserve them because they're still relevant and vibrant. And, and the Mahabharata, sure, it teaches us about ancient India, but it teaches us about us. It teaches us about life. There's there's no question, you know, that that there's there's so much in there that, that so that still relates to who we are even from a very different time, a very different geography, a very different context. And, and some, of these, some of these considerations are still so, so useful. I have, in, I have in mind in the back of my brain at some point to create some course or series called, you know, Human Nature in the Mahabharata or something ridiculous like that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, absolutely. And, and I think that, that it, this isn't the sort of thing that I talk about in the book, but um, during the process of writing this book, um, I was much more sort of self-reflective about my own moral dilemmas, my own choices I was making in my life. I mean, I can think of one in particular that, that at the time I was really struggling with, um, and that was that I was the, the admissions director for our, um, our religious studies program at Lancaster University, and I was also a member of the union and the, the union called a strike on one of our open days. But this was a particularly important open day, and our, our, um, our program was really struggling, you know, to the point that we would need every last student. And, you know, I, I really struggled on what to do. Um, and um, I think that writing a book <laughs> about moral dilemmas helped me. I mean, because it wasn't like I, it wasn't like, you know, um, like, a, you know, it wasn't like I could just pick up the Mahabharata and, you know, open to a page and think, okay, it's going to tell me what to do. Um, in, and I think that that's one of the things that I find so interesting about the Mahabharata is that, that there's not a single position that it puts forth that cannot be contested or challenged in, in one way or another. But I think that, it, that, that writing this book and thinking about how the Mahabharata um, presents the moral choices that are made by the characters within the text has just made me a much more sort of reflective person about the choices that I make in, in my own life. I'm not saying that that means that I, I necessarily make better choices <laughs> or that I'm making the right choices. Um, but on the other hand, I... I um, um, I, I think I'm more reflective about my choices and have, and therefore I feel that when I am making choices, um, maybe they're more informed choices um, through just being better at, at self-reflection. Um, so in, I think that that's the kind of a way 
that even though this text was was composed a long time ago, um, and for me, um, in the other side of the world, in a culture that I didn't grow up in myself, that that it still has a lot to say to to us, as in us as humans living, you know, in the world today. Now, um, in terms of, uh, we've touched on this this first sort of meaning of um, of in dialogue and and sort of this third one. Uh, the middle meaning of in dialogue, if I recall correctly, is a text being in dialogue with itself. And um, how do I put this? For me, this so relates to structure, the structure of the text. It's so crucial, I feel, for the, 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 the redactors or authors or assemblers of the Mahabharata or even the composers of the Mahabharata. And really across the Puranas, um, it's it's such that the context will tell you the content, uh, but that's that's very much a function of the structure of the text. You know, the the the, the Shangoka episode is uh, held within the Kandava forest burning, right? So by virtue of the positioning of what comes where in the text, whether it seems sequentially or obliquely positioned, the, the text is putting certain episodes in conversation by their very structure. Would you agree with that? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and I think, though, in the case of the Mahabharata, um, there are a number of different ways in which the structure sort of invites the, this um, intertextual dialogue. I mean, one, obviously, is through juxtaposing sections, having them quite close together, or, you know, serving a similar purpose within the same section. But I think that... Um, also, in such a, a massive text as the Mahabharata, it's interesting how the structure invites these, um, invites putting sections from diff very different um, parts of the text into dialogue with each other. And I think it does this in a number of ways. Um, I mean, one is through characters. Um, so, for example, one of the things that I explore in the chapter about Bhishma's vows is the sort of relationship between Bhishma's words and actions as kind of one of the main characters in, um, in the sort of main narrative thread in the first five books of the Mahabharata with the kinds of teachings that he gives Yudhishthira in books 12 and 13. I don't, I mean, unlike some of the first Western scholars of the Mahabharata who seem to think that that all of these um, didactic teachings were just kind of like chucked into the mouth of Bhishma as if they didn't have anywhere else to put it. I, um, I think that, that we need to take very seriously you know, who the narrator is um, in virtually everything they say. And so, for example, it's interesting that one of the teachings that Bhishma offers Yudhishthira is about the sage Kaushika, whose vow leads to the death of innocent people. How should we then reflect on the fact that the person whose life and very, the, you know, the essence of his character is defined by the vows that he's taken and that he's steadfastly stuck to throughout the narrative, despite the suffering that it caused everyone around him, what does it mean when that character is advising his student 
that one shouldn't always keep their vows? Um, or what does it mean when, um, when Bhishma, who again is, is perhaps one of the, the more misogynistic characters in the text, particularly um, in the entire Amba episode, and we see how his vows really led to, you know, the, the, the suffering of this one woman in particular, Amba, what does it mean that this same person is the one who tells the Sulaba story, etc.? So I think that, that uh, the, the, the teachings of the Mahabharata become sort of richer when we look at these sorts of tensions, these you know, possible contradictions in the text, but not, when I say contradictions, I don't mean like, like contradictions in terms of like bad editing <laughs> of the composers, but philosophical contradictions, ones that, that are deeply important for us to be reflecting upon. So that's one way I think that the Mahabharata, you know, through its structure brings sections from different parts of the text in dialogue with each other. Another way, of course, is through not only who's telling the stories, but who's listening to them. So, I mean, th this sort of thing has been explored elsewhere. For example, the fact that, that, that Draupadi is there as, alongside Yudhishthira listening to the stories of, of Savitri um, and listening to the stories of the, of the Patifrata in the Aranyaka Parvan. Um, it, I, I didn't talk about those incidents so much in my book, um, but I do find it very interesting that she, um, Draupadi, who's perhaps her most famous scene, is arguing um, in the Sabah, um, sort of sticking up for herself and ultimately, um, you know, making an argument that uh, maintains her sort of independence, her freedom, that at the very end of the book, she's sitting alongside Yudhishthira when Yudhishthira is hearing the Sulaba story being told by Bhishma. Um, I think that, that um, again, the Mahabharata doesn't tell us what, what Draupadi might have been thinking, how she would have um, reflected upon that story. But I think it invites, though, you know, the, the juxtaposition of the listener and the story invites us to be um, looking at the relationship between those two characters. Um, yeah, what you I mean, there's so much, there's so much synergy in what you say, what you're saying in this podcast and just the way I go about studying these texts. And like, so, for example, with the Puranas, I think it's even even more the case that um, they are perceived to be haphazard or sort of amassed. And I mean, there are these two extremes with the Mahabharata or even the Puranas. Let's just say the Mahabharata. One extreme is that, you know, it was dictated in one sitting by Vyasa and penned by Ganesha with his tusk. And the other extreme is that, oh, you know, it's just some hodgepodge, you know, Trojan horsing uh, for Brahmanical reasons of, of, of sort of, uh, you know, Puranic narratives or pseudo Puranic narratives. And then really, to me, the, the, the power of the Mahabharata is that despite, uh, despite the impact of many hands, despite a process of many generations, that either throughout that process or certainly by the final uh, redactions of the text, 
there is this extraordinary attention to meaning and structure and placement. And there is this profound sort of hive mind cohesive vision um, of the text uh, that's, that's uh, staggering, particularly in that we can more or less conclude that it's the work of many hands over a, a relatively long period of time. Um, so, so, so you have this, okay, well, the Devi Mahatmya, the glories of the goddess, uh, I ended up doing a, a, a narrative sort of account of it to see what, you know, what, what, what philosophy, what ideology is being privileged in the text. And what do I look at? I look at the very teeny pieces of the beginning and the end that, that the early colonial scholars say, well, that's a frimsy flame. Don't worry. That's a frim, flimsy frame. Don't worry about that. And I'm like, wait a minute. No, we have to see the greatness of the goddess and her exploits. Great. We have to see who's telling them to whom and, 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 and for what, for what reason? Why are they there? Well, it's a deposed king who needs his power back. And yes, as a disenfranchised merchant, if you pay careful attention, the sage is speaking to the king and the merchant just kind of like sitting there loitering. The merchant gets moksha, but that's not what the text is prioritizing. And, and it's, 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 by the, 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 it's, it's through the frame that you triangulate the Dharma of the Devi in the text. And so just using this as an example to say, I agree a thousand percent in terms of your methodology, uh, in terms of how you look at these narratives, not that I need to agree or disagree for this podcast. I mean, I, I, I entertain all kinds of methodologies, all kinds of findings. But uh, I can't help but comment, given the synergy between our work uh, and our approaches. Or there's a lot of similar themes that we find, as well as similar approaches in our, in our respective works. Definitely. Sure. Could you tell us now back to your work? Um, so you have five fascinating uh, quandaries, chapters about different ethical conundrums and characters. So the first one was the one about Bishma that you've talked about, and tell us about the, the next four. What else do you do you broach in your book? Okay, so as you say, the first chapter is about Bhishma's vows um, and the way that I explore them are through a number of different dialogues with Bhishma that go throughout the text. Now, in the second chapter, I look at um, the controversy surrounding Draupadi's marriage. And one of the things I find particularly interesting about that is that it, it, the way in which that controversy is addressed is quite different from the way that Bhishma's, the controversy about Bhishma's vows are addressed, is whereas, in a sense, we could say that the, the controversy about Bhishma's vows is addressed almost throughout the text. It's, it's a question that is returned to again and again and again. Draupadi's marriage, we never have, we have three pretty major and um, intense conversations about her marriage in the lead up to her marriage. Um, but on the other hand, it's something, although it's sort of alluded to as being controversial later, we never see another debate about it. We never see another discussion about it. But again, I think one of the things that I find interesting about this particular controversy is how many different reasons are put forward to justify this marriage. So for those of you who are perhaps unfamiliar with the Mahabharata, Draupadi is married to five men, the five Pandava brothers, and she's married to all five of them simultaneously. And a number of 
you know, modern scholars have been a bit kind of shocked um, by this. But one of the things I find interesting is that this is clearly something that's considered controversial within the text itself. So it's not like this is a, a kind of literary detail that's just completely accepted by the authors themselves and sort of glossed over as if, um, as if, as if everybody agreed that this was okay. Instead, this was something that, that squarely addressed um, by the characters within the text as being controversial, as being something that needs to be somehow explained or justified. And the, the two characters who go, who do the most to try to justify or explain this are Yudhishthira, who gives a number of um, reasons for why the, the marriage adheres to Dharma. Um, and then Vyasa, um, who's not only an authoritative character within the text, but also um, as the text itself acknowledges the author of the text. And so, first of all, it's interesting to, to just note all the different reasons. I think before I started writing this chapter, I was aware that there were different reasons. I think the most famous ones are that, um, that, that first of all, that Yudhishthira and the Pandavas are merely following their mother's advice, that their mother um, told them when they um, returned from the Swayamvara that they should just share whatever it is that they, that they had. Um, and she didn't look up to see that what they had was a, wo a woman with them, not, not alms, that, that she thought that they were collecting. And one of the things that I find interesting is when I talk to people from India today who have grown up with the Mahabharata, this seems to be the reason that most people associate um, as sort of justifying the marriage. But, um, and, and one of the things I find in my analysis of these conversations is that this is one of the most repeated reasons and so it certainly does um, have sort of more authority than some of the other reasons within the text itself. But then on the other hand, it is by no means the only reason um, given for why um, the five Pandavas should marry Draupadi, um, nor is it even necessarily considered the most authoritative reason because the, the two reasons that Vyasa gives, one being that, um, that basically this is the fulfillment of Draupadi's karma of something that she did in a previous life um, or the justification that um, the five Pandavas are incarnations of the five Indras in Draupadi's the incarnation of Sri. And so here we have three you know, very prominent reasons. And I, I would say those are the three most prominent reasons within the text. And they're all sort of supported in one way or another, but then all of them show signs of not being quite good enough <laughs> on their own within the text itself as well. And, but even in addition to that, there are at least five other reasons that Yudhishthira gives as to, as to why this marriage is justified. So I think that, that we learn a lot about sort of methods of reasoning um, ways of making arguments um, 
um, on what sort of grounds um, Draupadi's marriage was, was the, the, the legitimacy of her marriage was being challenged and on what sort of grounds it was seen it that it was possible to justify it on. I think we learn a lot about these sorts of things by looking quite closely at the um, discussions leading up to, um, to Draupadi's marriage to the five Pandava brothers. Now, in the, in the third chapter, um, I, I, I actually, I started writing this chapter about Yudhishthira and I ended up um, writing far more about Duryodhana because I ended up finding that that was the far more interesting scene to me. But my sort of question going into writing this chapter was what brought about the dicing match? Um, how did that dicing match ever come to take place in the first place? And I remember that, that Yudhishthira basically gives um, a number of different justification as to why he agrees to play dice. And I analyze those different reasons in the, his short discussion with Vidura, as well as later justifications that he gives, um, mostly retrospectively to other characters. And like my analysis with, with Bhishma, I find it very interesting that oftentimes the, the main reasons, a, a reason that a character gives for justifying what they do changes as basically time passes and changes as they offer different justifications to different characters and different situations along the way. But then what really captured my imagination as I was writing this chapter was that the events leading up to the dicing match were as much about Duryodhana and his um, his dialogue with Dhritarashtra as it was about um, the decision that Yudhishthira made finally to play dice once that he was invited to play. And one of the things that I found particularly interesting about the dialogue between Duryodhana and Dhritarashtra is, is that this dialogue appears to have three different versions within the text itself. And um, two of those versions appear quite closely together. They have already um, been commented upon by Franklin Edgerton, who, um, who put together the critical edition of the Sabah Parvan, um, as well as Alf Hiltabaitl. So I thought it was pretty clear um, from their scholarship, and I think they, they both um, but especially Hiltabaitl does an excellent job at kind of showing that these, these, these very much are different versions. But whereas most other scholars are inter interested in when they see different versions of the same thing, interested in which one was first, which one is more original, my interest was far more in, in what kind of how do these two versions present the same situation differently? And so if we're looking at, um, if we're looking at the question of how the Mahabharata um, characterizes how the dicing match came to take place in the first place, 
we can see that it's again throwing off uh, different explanations as to how this dicing match ever could have taken place. And then in addition to these two, um, these two versions of the dialogue that are, that are juxtaposed with each other and presented as one continuous conversation within the Sabah Parvam, there's also another version of this, um, this encounter that takes place in the Shanti Parvam. And again, most scholars have just completely ignored that version, thinking like, oh, you know, it, it must have been chucked in there somehow. Um, it, it, it has nothing to do with the earlier version. But I think once again, it, it's, it's very interesting to see um, this is yet another account of what the Mahabharata clearly seems to think um, as a significant conversation. So in other words, the very fact that there's so many versions of the same dialogue, to me, suggests that this is oh, considered a very important moment within the text. And the, the, far more important than I ever thought it was beforehand. Yeah, you wanted to the di No, I was just going to say, to my mind, the dialogues are, are themselves in dialogue. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and just while, while I've already interrupted you, I mean, one comment about what you were saying about the, 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 the previous chapter is uh, the question of the five husbands. Um, to my mind, uh, the, the scene with, um, you know, just share what you brought back, you know, it's, 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 it's interesting. It's funny. It's, it's sort of, I think it, to my mind, it, it always struck me as sort of um, comical in how sort of uh, how, overtly flaccid the justification that could be for, 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 for five men sharing a woman in, in, in this cultural context. And it, there must be more going on there, right? Uh, whether there's some karmic impetus or, or, or something from a previous life or who knows what, and, 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 and her, you know, under this way of Maya, she declared this so as to advance, so as, so as to advance Daiva's will for some karmic purpose, but it's a vexing uh, situation. And, what I wanted to comment on is the fact that that doesn't go anywhere. The, the, the dialogue you're talking about continues even beyond the Mahabharata. How does the Markandeya Purana begin? It begins with Jaimini, the student of Vyasa. Okay, this is the very beginning of the Markandeya Purana. The student of Vyasa, Jaimini, comes to the great Markandeya and says, I've studied the Mahabharata front to back, back to front, and um, I'm really confused about these four questions. He's a student of Vyasa, and he's going to, he's, he's going, he's going to Markandeya and saying, I just, I, I, I've, I've read the Mahabharata, and I can't figure this out. Can you help me? And one of his four questions is, how the heck does Draupadi have four husbands, five husbands, sorry. And so the, the, the dialogue continues between the texts um, and also the, the same dialogue about the, 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 the content, this question, it continues because it's something that isn't easily resolvable. But enough yammering on for me. Please go on and tell us about the rest of your book. No, no, but, but, no, but absolutely. And I think, I mean, one of the things I think that we see with, with so many different versions of the Mahabharata, as well as the many Ramayana traditions, is how, um, you know, with each new version, it tries to address questions that are, you know, as old as the tradition itself. And so in that way, we see that not only is the Mahabharata itself one sort of great big 
discussion or conversation, as you were saying earlier, but then just think of all the further conversations <laughs> that it prompts as it begins other texts or, or is the sort of starting point of other debates and other circumstances. So, but anyway, yeah, I was sort of just finishing up talking about chapter three. Um, and yeah, so I, I, um, I, I found that chapter a lot of fun to, to work on because I think with some of the other chapters, I had a much better idea where they were going when I started. But with that chapter, it really took on a life of its own. And, and through analyzing, especially this Duryodhana dialogue, I, it went places that I really didn't anticipate and um, really learned a lot from working on that. The next chapter is um, primarily focused on um, the scene where Draupadi makes an argument for her own freedom um, after she has been staked and, and lost um, by Yudhishthira in the dicing match. And I, I mean, this is a, um, an episode that I've been interested in for a long time and for a long time wanted to write about it, but I, I certainly entered writing about this with more trepidation just because it has been written about by so many people. And um, in saying that, um, a lot of people who've done a very good job writing about it. And so I didn't, I didn't want to, you know, sort of replicate merely what other people have said. I still felt though, that despite all the good work done on this scene, that the complexities of Draupadi's arguments hadn't really been fully explored. Um, Draupadi, I think, is sort of known for asking this one question in particular, and that question is the question that she begins with, and that is um, a question directed towards Yudhishthira about the legitimacy of the stake, asking, who did you lose first, yourself or me? Um, but one of the things I find particularly interesting about this scene is she follows up that question with numerous other questions along the way. So that's why I made sure to use the title Draupadi's Questions, uh, plural, to name this chapter, to really bring attention to the fact that, that her argument doesn't hinge on just one question in particular. And I've, you know, I basically argue that there are sort of three main dimensions to her, to her argument. And so I hope to have brought, you know, a fresh interpretation to this scene um, because, um, you know, one that, one that was just focusing on how she makes her arguments and the sort of, you know, religious or philosophical basis of some of the arguments that, that she makes. The other thing, though, that I do in that chapter is that then I compare Draupadi's scene to, um, to, to other female characters, both of whom also make debates in the Sabah, who make debates in the royal court um, about matters that concern themselves, but also matters that we might um, see as more public concern. Um, and the two other characters I compare her to are Shakuntala and Sulaba, because I think that there's something really significant 
about the fact that these three female characters are debating within similar circumstances um, as sort of lone women um, debating in a court of, of mostly men. And um, I, I addressed at the very end of that chapter the question of whether or not we might use a sort of, whether we might use sort of feminist lenses to understand these characters. Um, I'm not sort of introducing that question. This is a question that has brought to these, have been brought to these female characters in the past. And I think that my answer is that they're both feminists and not feminists. Um, I, but my, my major point, I think, is that they, they have a lot to say to feminism. Um, and uh, there, are, there are obviously sort of anachronistic problems about trying to use such a modern, you know, specifically modern term to describe um, women or female characters in the ancient world. But then on the other hand, um, I think that looking at, at what their arguments are um, the circumstances, the, the similarities and the circumstances they face, that there's, there's a lot there for people who are interested in feminism, who want to sort of branch out to look at, you know, women from other cultures and other, in other historical contexts. So, so that is, is that chapter that's, that's mainly focused on, on Draupadi, but then compares her to two other female characters. And then the final chapter um, begins with the Bhagavad Gita and is about a number of different conversations that take place with Krishna. And again, I, um, I, I approach this, this chapter with considerable trepidation because um, if there's one episode in the Mahabharata that has been written about more than any other one, it is the Bhagavad Gita. But one of the things that I really wanted to sort of drive home in this chapter was how our understanding of the Bhagavad Gita can change and be enriched by fully exploring its embeddedness within the Mahabharata more generally. Um, I'm not the first person to make that point, um, but I think that, that some of the ways, at least I hope that some of the ways that I have explored its embeddedness are a bit new and different. When my, my, um, my discussion about the Bhagavad Gita itself is not meant to, um, to be talking about the Bhagavad Gita's main teachings or anything like that, but again, my approach is, is really looking at the contours of the Bhagavad Gita as dialogue. I feel like um, a lot of attention has been paid to Krishna's teachings, but not enough attention has been paid to Arjuna as an interlocutor, the questions that he asks, and how it's often his questions that really sort of drive the direction of the conversation. I think that sometimes Arjuna is taken to be a rather passive listener, and I try to explore Krishna as, I mean, sorry, as Arjuna, as a far more active listener and one who's really shaping the teaching of Krishna by the questions that, that he asks. But then after um, the section on, on the Bhagavad Gita itself, then I look at 
five other conversations with, with Krishna. Two of those other conversations also involved Arjuna. Um, one is from the Karna Parvan um, that takes place right in the middle of the war. And then, of course, the other one is the Anugita, which takes place after the war. And I think that there's a really interesting symmetry then before, between those three dialogues that we have a before, during, and after. And as we go through those conversations one by one, we see that in some ways similar themes come up, but the teachings that Krishna gives and the justifications for why he gives the teachings that he does um, are in some cases a little bit different or take on a different sort of um, nature to them. But then by the time we get to the Anugita, radically different. And I think that rather than seeing the, the Anugita as, again, this sort of add-on to the text, I, I see it as really um, the Mahabharata really trying to grapple with what the implications of the Bhagavad Gita ultimately are. Um, as um, Arvind Sharma has suggested, the Anugita might be considered, you know, the first commentary on the Bhagavad Gita. And so I'm very interested throughout this chapter of how these different conversations with Krishna um, are in dialogue with each other. And the three other dialogues that I look at in that chapter, one is the dialogue between um, Krishna and his brother Balarama, again, that takes place during the war. Um, then the one that he has with Gandhari immediately after the war. And then finally, the one he has with Utanka, which is Krishna's last dialogue within the text. And one of the things that I try to explore in this chapter is the extent to which we might say, cumulatively, these different dialogues with Krishna offer a sort of what I call a dialogical theology of Krishna. Because I think that if we look at all these dialogues together, it tells us something interesting about what kind of divinity Krishna is and what kind of relationship different um, devotees can have with this God. And one of the things that, that I conclude is that, that it, it's, well, it's very interesting to see that Krishna offers his most, um, you know, his, his, his highest teachings, um, as well as offers his divine form to those who question him the most. And so, in other words, I think that, that through dialogue, we see that these scenes within the Mahabharata invite devotees or interlocutors of Krishna not to shy away from the difficult questions about his divinity, but to ask him these questions directly. And in fact, the greatest sort of um, soteriological payoffs come to those who challenge Krishna and ask him the difficult questions. I find that, you know, a, a very interesting um, implication of these dialogues with Krishna. 
But then on the other hand, we're left with further questions because um, even though he offers that payoff of his highest teachings and his divine form to Arjuna and Utanka, um, I can't help but feel eternally uncomfortable with the way he treats Gandhari. And I think that that, that kind of shows a, a different side to Krishna and perhaps one that's never completely addressed um, through the answers that he gives. It's, uh, there's, so much, there's so much there. I mean, if, if Krishna is nothing else, then he's certainly a, a great teacher. And like all great teachers, the, the responses are never canned, right? They need to be uh, in direct response to who is asking and, and for what reason and at what stage of development. You know, a coaching question, should I put my needs first or theirs? Well, if you have a lifetime of being self-absorbed, you know, there's one answer. And if you have a lifetime of being self-effacing and you, you struggle with taking care of your own needs, you have a different answer, right? And so, so there's this, it's, it, it's so rich, right? The, the implications of what you're showing in this chapter are very rich. And I think in alignment with what the text is doing, which is um, uh, demonstrating how perspectival Dharma is, how, how, how hopelessly sort of dependent to the point of like, you know, this is why it's sukshma, it's, it's evasive because even if it is an internal principle or something along the lines of ruta or something, it nevertheless manifests in this tumultuous, dynamic zoo we call life. And so what's the dharma when you're taking care of a giraffe versus an elephant versus a hippopotamus versus a monkey? It's very difficult to know, right? Yeah. But I think that for me, though, um, it, it, is, it is sukshma, it is subtle, it is evasive, it is... It's un, it's it's undescribable. Um, it's it's on some level it it what could be considered dharma is is you know constantly changing from one context to the next. But I also I I, I don't agree with the idea that that the Mahabharata is trying to sort of undermine dharma itself. I think that it, it's pushing us to understand it in in different types of ways. Um, rather than trying to deconstruct the very concept, it's um, yeah, yeah I, I would agree with that. It's 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 showing that um, 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 this needs it needs to be modified for different circumstances. It needs to be applied and repurposed, but not because uh, not because everything's relative, right? Mm-hmm. It's 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 everything's relative in this outer world and in circumstance, but there is a sense of what's right and not right. And it's sort of one way to read Bhishma is certainly he's impulsive. Another way is that he just, he knows he it's conviction or instinct for him. Like he somehow he knows what's right. And this is the right thing to do. You know, maybe he he's, he's forced to justify that throughout mm-hmm. <laughs> the epic because, you know, maybe it's not so clear. Um, 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 what, uh, I know, like picking between chapters sometimes can be like picking between children. But was there one that was your most favorite or illuminating, or like was there one that you 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 you, you thoroughly sort of enjoyed more than the others? Or I mean, it, it it is really difficult to say because I I really thoroughly enjoyed um, writing each chapter at least at some point. I mean, there were there are certainly moments along the way where each chapter was so challenging to me that that I wasn't enjoying it <laughs> at a particular moment in time. Um, I think that, that, that the two chapters that I feel that are 
the or perhaps the the most innovative just in terms of covering material that hasn't tended to be covered as much by other Mahabharata scholars is the 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 first chapter on Bhishma and the third chapter on on the Duryodhana and Dhritarashtra dialogue. I think that um, that that you know as I said the chapters four and five um, I, I I I definitely feel that I have some new things to say. Um, I, I see Mahabharata scholarship like I see the Mahabharata itself as a conversation. And I, I feel that, you know, rather than writing anything definitive, that I've contributed um, something worthwhile to this conversation. But in those chapters, you know, by no means am I the first scholar, even in the last several years, to, to be writing about some of these scenes. So I think that that um, in that sense, the 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 first chapter and the third chapter were perhaps more exciting journeys because I had less of a sense where I might end up when I started writing them. Fascinating. Now, as uh, someone who pays attention to structure and who likes to use this, this typology of ring composition uh, for Sanskrit narrative, it's interesting to me that one can view your book itself as a ring composition. The first and the fifth chapters uh, are parallel in that they're talking about these stoic teachers of sorts. Second and the fourth are about Draupadi, and then smack dab in the middle, it's uh, Duryodhana and Yudhishthira, you know, the, uh, pertaining to the education of this of, of the Dharma king, and so I, I find that really interesting. Yeah, well, I mean, there was a, I mean, I do like structure, <laughs> and um, I mean, the way you put that though is probably even a better articulation of how I structured it in my own mind. Um, so you know, perhaps if you if you work with structures enough, you end up sort of almost instinctively <laughs> using structures that you don't always well, see. Well, one of the one of the quandaries about ring composition that we see pervading various cultures in the ancient world is like, well, did someone did, did, did the authors of the Devi Mahatmya sit down and say, let me craft a ring narrative? Did the authors of Beowulf do that? We don't really know. I mean, I I suspect not. I suspect it's something more similar to it being a function of how we unconsciously structure things in our mind and that and that and that we produce ring compositions where they exist everywhere not because people sit down and say well let me write a ring composition now you know it, it may well be certainly modern myth makers do that but it may well be there's something about just how we go about organizing material in some way so it's it's interesting to me i also and, yeah. think that there are certain kind of techniques that you know textual composers were very well versed at and so it, it almost like, you know, that, um, you know, so many texts have either a ring structure or some sort of, you know, quite important structure that's there once we start looking at it more closely. And so I, I, I think when we find these sorts of structures in ancient sources that, that it's almost always the case that they're very deliberate because these sorts of structures were, were very important you know, to, to textual composers at that time. Fascinating. So um, do you want to maybe, um, well, first of all, tell us if there's anything else about the book that you want, you hope to touch on, we didn't get a chance to. Well, I think that, um, yeah, I can't think of anything that, um, that, that we haven't talked about that I, that I desperately want to bring up. Um, you know, we went through all, all the chapters and, um, it, do, you, do you have any other, any sort of link? No, 
No, not at all. No, I think it was a great, strong podcast indicative of many of the the, 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 the features of the book. Um, so I'll end with this, this sort of uh, question that I often end with in terms of, so, so what now? What are you working on now? What's the next project? Well, it's interesting that you, you mentioned Sukshma Dharma because Sukshma Dharma does end up being a theme in, the, in dialogue with the Mahabharata book. It, um, it's, it's, it's one of those themes that I didn't really start putting together or pulling together um, until the end. And in a sense, I probably say more about Sukshma Dharma in the conclusion <laughs> than, I, than I knew that I was going to at the beginning. But I've, I, I spent um, a good portion of the initial lockdown period in Britain um, working on, a, on an article about Sukshma Dharma. And so that's going to be coming out next year. So that was sort of my first project of coming out of this was um, looking more into the concept of Sukshma Dharma. And in that, in that article, I'm very interested in how Sukshma Dharma is, um, is explained through narrative. So in other words, um, you know, a number of main characters do mention Sukshma Dharma as I, as I you know, bring attention to in the book, um, in the Dicing episode or the, the aftermath of the Dicing episode. Draupadi and Bhishma refer to it, or in the discussions about Draupadi's marriage, Yudhishthira and Draupadi's brother refer to it. But it's, it's interesting that in these contexts, they, um, Sukshma Dharma is mentioned almost as if like this is a type of Dharma that we can't quite understand, or there's some sort of higher teaching of Dharma that, that you, my interlocutor, isn't talking about but without the person who mentioning it, who's mentioning it actually trying to explain or describe what it is. And one of the things I've found is that, that um, there are three subtales, sorry, there are four subtales in the entire Mahabharata that are introduced as a teaching about Sukshma Dharma. And then three of them um, talk about Sukshma Dharma within the subtale itself. So I analyze those three subtales as a way to sort of enrich our understanding of what this top type of dharma might mean. So, so that's, that, that I had a lot of fun doing and, and found very interesting. Um, and another paper that I'm working on at the moment is one on the character Ulupi, who is um, the second woman to marry Draupadi, I mean, to marry uh, Arjuna after Draupadi. And um, I sort of started looking at her character by accident, um, but there are a number of ways in which I find her character to be far more integral to the main story than we would normally think. So I'll sort of leave it until the finished publication to explain why, um, but that, that has been really fun um, a, a really fun project to focus on that character. And that, that it came completely out of the blue um, to, to start looking at her character. But generally speaking, one of the things I'm, I'm interested in doing next is, is exploring more about the resonances between texts like the Mahabharata 
as well as other texts I've looked at, like the Upanishads, in, in terms of their resonances with philosophical and ethical debates today. Um, and so, in a sense, um, I sort of gesture towards that in the in dialogue with the Mahabharata book. But it's more, it's more like a general gesture than an actual, like, okay, here's how they're important to this particular debate today. I think the most sort of concrete way that I address that question is in chapter four, when I look at how these female characters might have, you know, might speak to feminism in some ways um, and challenge the concept of feminism in other ways. And that's the sort of work that I would like to do more of. Um, I'm working with James Medeo right now on a project of looking at how pluralism is, um, is represented in ancient Indian sources. Um, and, um, and a recent work that I've done is, is exploring um, how um, is sort of interrogating the concept of secularism through ancient Indian sources. And, and so I'm, I'm hoping to, to kind of take these sorts of projects um, a bit further in the coming years. And of course, I still have the next two sections <laughs> of this, of this um, you know, completely unrealistic project of um, a sort of massive book on dialogue in the Mahabharata. And in a sense, the, the, the paper on Sukshma Dharma might be the first step towards that, because in that, what I'm interested in are the dialogues um, that include more marginal characters, um, dialogues that you know, include a housewife or a butcher or a chandala, um, and the sort of voices of, of, you know, from the margins and how they speak to the main text. So it sounds like A, you have a bunch of time on your hands, uh, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> and B, you have a complete shortage of interest and ideas about the Mahabharata. No, it's, it's fantastic. It's fantastic. You're still deeply inspired by the text. Um, and uh, clearly this won't be your last time on this podcast. Let's put it that way. We'll, we'll have you back when you, when, when you, when you pop out the next uh, Mahabharata publication, <laughs> we'll christen it on this podcast as usual. Um, Brian, it's been great chatting with you today. Uh, I'm going to sign off formally um, and then maybe could chat for a bit, but uh, thanks very much for appearing on the podcast. Thank you, Raj. I enjoyed it very much. Great. For those of you listening, we've been speaking with Dr. Brian Black of Lancaster University, who is the author of a brand new 2020 Rutledge publication entitled In Dialogue with the Mahabharata. Hopefully you've gleaned many an insight about the power of publication through our dialogue with its author. Until next time, stay safe, keep reading, keep listening, and may the dialogue continue.